0: We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim, and we have another great episode in our DEI series And today, our featured guest is, say hello, featured guest. Hi.
1: Hi. My (laughs) name or you just want me to say hi. Hey, hi. How are you? (laughs) Maya Winston, DEI leader, strategist, dot connector, dream believer, people incubator, all around nerd of my own building as well, alias Little Black Girl from South Central L.A. Excited to be here with you and talk diversity and all that jazz.
0: It's going to be a super fun conversation and super serious and super interesting. There's a lot of supers there, but I will say if LB was here and you know LB, he's crabby and no fun. If he heard that title, he would be just grumbling and grumbling. Oh, that's not an appropriate title. It's too long. That's my LB impression.
1: Yeah, he's going to get you later. He also knows me and he knows the title is the title.
0: He's teaching class today. He's going to miss out a lot of interesting conversation. But, you know, today, the topic of the show is going to be pretty controversial. We're going to explore how you actually use DEI as a critical success factor for a startup and embedding that across an organization. Before we get into the meat of the conversation, I want to dig into your background a little bit and have you walk us through how you became so focused in DEI as a practice and what that focus has taken you through the years.
1: I don't think it's controversial, but we'll get into that later. It should be enlightening versus being controversial. So I'm hoping that whoever is listening, whoever decides to take the time to really sit and consume what it is that we will discuss today takes it from a perspective of learning and trying to find a place of understanding versus finding a place of argument. I will start there. My DEI journey... Started, as I stated, Little Black Girl from South Central A, but I was born, raised, educated, and priced out, but did attend the University of Southern California. Go Trojans. Trojan Family is a very strong network. But I worked while I was in college during, I want to say about two and a half years. I worked in student affairs with our Black Student Services Office it's called the Center for Black Cultural and Student Affairs. And was able to learn from the university side, essentially DEI aspects and how to navigate the administration, community involvement, activities as far as students and helping to coordinate some of those activities and supporting the director and not even knowing it as the formal title of DEI. That was a lot of the work. And there's also a lot of liaising with our Asian American student office. Our We had a Mexican-American student off, which served Hispanic-Latino um, populations as well, and there were other student services, but being advocates and understanding what it meant to have the representation on a campus uh, of a very large school, which had a very small Black or African-American population of 6%. You have a student population, and then you have to find community within the community, and The activities that were supported through that office helped to make it seem like it was a small family within the bigger campus of 30 something thousand other people, be it commuters, be it other students, you know, coming and going, transfer students and things like that. So that was my first foray into that type of work. And I do see a lot of similarities. And I know that was great training ground. So shout out to Dr. Corliss P. Bennett, who was my leader in that capacity. And Dr. Frank Harris, who is a amazing leader within the DEI space within education right now, too. Both of them I had the opportunity to work with and learn from as it relates to how to navigate these spaces while advocating and also changing the game for those who are coming through and going through the system as students, but also as employees.
0: There's a lot of different areas that we could go off into more detail, but there's a couple of things that I want to chime in on. One, just because I'm a clown, and two, because it sets up for another interesting conversation. So first, being a USC alum, not just a fan, I know that we're going to get along great because you know what USC alums have in common with me? We both hate Notre Dame. So sorry to any Notre Dame alum or listener that's out there. I don't know. Never liked Notre Dame. It is what it is. The thing that that caught my attention when you were talking about your background and your experience and how it started out in USC, there's an interesting story behind how all of these universities that tend to be located in socioeconomically challenged areas don't represent the communities that they belong in. But that's a topic for another discussion. And it just immediately caught my eye because unless you had mentioned it, I, I would have bet that USC was much more diverse than I think you said six or 7%. And I'm pretty familiar with where it's located and it's mm-hmm. not demographically aligned with where it's located. So that's, that was an interesting point that caught my attention.
1: The way I ended up at USC was I was involved in a program. It's called the Neighborhood Academic Initiative, and it is still there. It is a community-based organization that is in direct correlation with the university that helps to prepare students ages sixth grade through 12th grade. Now sixth grade, it was seventh grade when I was there that kind of ages me there, middle school, junior high thing. But it teaches you college, gives you exposure to campus life, We had classes on campus in the mornings. Our language arts and math classes were on campus. We had after school tutoring back on campus. We were tutored by students. Sometimes we would have seminars with some professors from USC. We were given exposure to cultural events throughout the city. There were many nights after school, we were going to the Hollywood Bowl to listen to the LA Philharmonic. We went to the opera at Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, did a lot of things. We went to the Getty Center all the time, learning about art from different eras and being able to see that and have one on ones with the docents and things like that. But this program also prepared each of us who we had to apply and interview to be accepted. And I believe the initial class was 1991. And if you got through and met the requirements as it was agreed upon by the university and this program, of a GPA requirement, as well as an SAT requirement, you got a four and a half year scholarship to the university. With that commitment, and we were all in neighborhood schools, the junior high and high school that I went to is in walking distance from USC. So in days where we didn't have a school bus, we would walk back to school from USC in the morning from our language arts classes back to school. And then in the afternoon, sometimes we have to walk back To go get tutored by USC students in whatever we needed to do for our homework. On Saturdays, we had SAT prep classes from eight to 12 every Saturday. And so we were in school six days a week for six years in order to qualify and make sure that we were up to par to meet the requirements if you qualified for the scholarship when you graduated. There were some people who didn't, even though they went through all the courses and everything else. And it's not because of lack of trying, but sometimes your path is different. And so they could defer. That admission or that acceptance to graduate school for two years if they chose not to do it in undergrad. But it was also very interesting to see what the perception of students who were helping us out, who were doing it as work study, or even if they were just doing it as a job, yeah. they were learning from us the same way we were learning from them. But even with us having exposure and being on the campus all the time and it being our neighborhood and us knowing, I can say when I started school there, It was a completely different world, despite the fact that I could walk home in 10 minutes. It was a completely different environment being within the perimeter of the university, even though it was in my hood and having to learn how to navigate that and understand what the rules were in that perimeter, but also meeting people who weren't used to it, who had to learn what the rules were outside the perimeter or changing the narrative that they had about what it was those people. that live over there. It's like, I am those people. I'm cool enough to, you know, eat with you in the dining hall. But once you go outside the walls, you're afraid and you're clutching and you're, oh, scary them. I am them. So what is it that is the disconnect there? And I sat on several orientation student panels and there were always the parents who, oh, I'm so worried about my child's safety. And and I had to tell several times, I was like, it is not a requirement that your child graduate with a four-year degree and two bullet holes. That is not going to be a requirement for graduation here. And it's the same thing that you need to have anywhere else, which is street smarts, which is common sense. Govern yourself as you would anywhere else, but don't vilify an other the people whose home you're visiting yeah. as a student, but also respect it as such and get to know the neighborhood, go out and learn about it versus it being treated as the ghetto, which was thrown around so easily. Oh, that's the ghetto on the other side of exposition. It was like, no, it actually isn't. It's no more than what's happening inside these walls, it's just people's homes. People live, their children, schools live in life. But when you need something, you're going into the ghetto. And so it was that was always an interesting thing for me to see. But then also the economic development that happened within the university and how they built up within their own perimeter. But the outside was allowed to be run down, deteriorated and and just ignored.
0: There is a lot there, I think, when you touch on the out of town perception. There's a lot of cultural conditioning that happens. I'm a Chicago guy. And if you talk to anybody that's not from Chicago, they think that people driving down the street shooting at each other all the time. And there are places where that happens from time to time. But what's interesting is that my wife and I were talking about this the other day. We both lived in Chicago proper in various neighborhoods. So for a period of 10 years, we lived in Chicago across multiple neighborhoods. And the neighborhoods that we lived in never once heard a gunshot or had a, a shooting incident that got on our radar we moved to the far north suburbs of illinois and almost every other week is that going on we both looked at each other we moved out of chicago so like when our kids are like riding their bikes or whatever they don't get run over and now we moved to the north suburbs and we're dealing with shootings within a decent neighborhood we're dealing with shootings every week it's a really weird sort of optics or conditioning that happens that causes people from out of town to perceive a city some sort of way, based on the proportion of brown people that happen to be living there. And I'm just going to call it out and say it like the higher the proportion of brown people, and the darker those brown people are, there's a proportional fear that exists on that scale is the browner you go, the more afraid out of town people get about hanging out in your neighborhood.
1: That's very true. And to loop it back around, to corral it back into the topic of diversity and startups. You think about that mentality as it relates to some startups who are looking for places that may be economically disadvantaged. I'm in Dallas now, and the divide between North Dallas and South Dallas is very evident. South Dallas is brown people, the majority of residents are Black, African American, and Latino residents. North Is diverse, but the majority of which are white residents, but there are others, most of whom are transplants here. When you hear about the economic growth in Dallas in general and all this startups and tech growing, that's north. It is all north. Dallas has very poor public transportation. The wages are very different north Mm -hmm. and south and so you think about the amenities as well as people's ability to get around without there being consistent public transportation and all your if all your new jobs and all your high paying jobs are north but someone lives south and the only way they can get there is by a car but between construction and a road is always on, under construction here i don't care when it is between that the cost of gas prices the cost of car maintenance Even a work from home job, if you don't live in an area that has consistent Internet service, we still have places that are food deserts where people there are no grocery stores within 10 miles of where people were actually living. It's not even like it's undeveloped. No, there are people there. There are just no grocery stores, but there's fast food. There's almost a predatory nature in some of the startups looking for cheaper land if they are choosing to have physical locations. And going into areas and building them up only to push people out or push them further away from the opportunity they are saying they're creating. Are you really coming in to help improve an environment? Are you coming in to just, you know, deplete it of a, a resource and then go away, which is really not helping the diversity? And it's not that everybody should be a B Corp and everybody should have their heart as a part of their business. It would be great, but let's be realistic. Bottom lines matter. But at the same time, how are you going in and actually helping and also pulling your labor force from where you're setting up shop? And are you doing it in such a way that you're elevating the positive perception of your brand, as well as bringing in new talent and finding that talent that could be useful there? Are you just using more of the same, but doing it at your own benefit without considering all of the elements that are around it?
0: There's so much ground there for a conversation about structurally maintaining the status quo Mm -hmm. that we could have. I want to focus in on the core point of the show, which is DEI should be an integral part of any organization. It should be embedded in the organization and from a startup perspective. It should be a core competency, a key success factor to uh, a startup's growth cycle. When I hear that, and I've built startups, not to the extent like big tech has built startups, but you get what I'm saying. I came up in an environment where the number one responsibility for a startup is to drive revenue. So I wasn't even thinking about the D&I. That doesn't mean I wasn't doing D&I thing. I wasn't thinking about it as a primary driver. If I understand your position correctly, you're making the case that this should be a primary driver in any organization, which I agree, but especially in a startup when you're looking at where that startup is supposed to go at some point in the future. That's an interesting hill to stand on. Explain. Explain.
1: Explain (laughs) yourself. let's let's talk about industry overall. When you think about specifically in the United States, when you talk about industry, when you talk about corporations, that structure, and who it was designed for, and who was supposed to be in charge and who was supposed to be the labor at the bottom. And it was designed for rich white men to build large conglomerates while building it upon the backs of non-white people. We'll just say that for right now. I know that there are nuances to that when you start getting into class issues and levels and for the majority, non-white people as your frontline labor force who are generating the output that brings in the revenue for the rich white man to keep getting richer. So as cheap as possible, I want some frontline labor to do all the work that's going to help me improve my bottom line and help me expand my territory and be rich. Yes, there are the, again, as I mentioned, the different nuances of the different groups that started to migrate to the United States for opportunities, especially you talk about the turn of the 20th century, where you have the large populations of Italian and Irish immigrants who came through and were also othered and seen as lower class than those who had already been in the United States, be those from England and other parts of Europe that came over with some wealth. And we're able to capitalize upon that and build. And then there had to be this rise in the ranks of those who were not of that class already. That's a whole different separate discussion. We just gonna keep it basic of who started corporations and who was it designed to serve and who was supposed to win there. There was never a thought of I'm doing this, I white male mogul, am doing this so that one day that Asian man building my railroad. That Mexican man over here building my buildings, that black man over here cleaning my house and serving my food. I'm going to elevate his position and bring him up and make sure he has opportunity to win too. It was never in the design. And I'm purposely saying man, because it was not until fairly recently when we talk about women in the workforce being normalized and being elevated and allowed to be a part of leadership and even leading companies beyond entrepreneurship, but just within these corporate structures that existed that even today control the majority of the money, allowing just women and by women, white women to elevate to the ranks to be on par, at least have a seat at the table. That's a fairly new concept.
0: Even that aspect of it isn't particularly well uh, executed. LB and I talk about this uh, fairly regularly where his doctoral research is on women in executive leadership. And when you look at, I don't have the exact numbers because it's not my research, but when you look at the Fortune 500, there's something like 40 women that are at the CEO level. And the question, LB brings this point up on a regular basis when we're talking with our featured guests. The question is often asked, well, why are there only so few women or this many women in it? When the question should be, why are there this many men that are in the position? largely monochromatic men too. We can slice and dice all of that stuff. So I get your point, the structure.
1: To that point though, so back to startups and how it fits into that. When I think startup, the first word that comes to mind when I hear of someone having a startup or going in there is disruption. You are coming in to start and introduce something. It may not be a completely new concept, but you're approaching it from a different level of execution or you're putting your own spin on it, but you're introducing it into the marketplace and you're gonna see how far. In that spirit and in that understanding, knowing what has been as far as corporate structures, DEI should be there so early that it is a part of that change of how you do business versus doing business how it's been done and then we'll get to the other changes later. If you're truly going to disrupt And come in and do something differently and prove that it while also getting your money because conscious capitalism, let's not take the money out of it. And that's, I think, a a conflict that a lot of people have when talking about DEI is like, oh, money is the right thing to do. And nobody's doing this for free. Let's be clear conscious capitalism, money is always going to be a part of the conversation if we're talking about business. When you're doing that and understanding, okay, the goal is to change the game while also getting our money together and getting revenues so that if you decide to do good in the community, like a B Corp, you have the resources and not doing it at your own detriment. If you choose to elevate and train up the labor force that looks different than the one now, to change what you're saying as far as a Fortune 500, we want it to look like a whole bunch of everybody versus the same, you know, homogenous view. Changing that whole thing up. Startups, should be at the forefront of making it look different, and there are few of them that are already on that path that I have noticed
0: Ooh, man i I think when people see the video of this, it's going to be interesting for them to view the reaction on my face because when you tied in disruption, I had a big aha moment right there because a startup in terms of what it does, you're right it disrupts an existing structure. so what is more disruptive than just fundamentally reorienting how you build an organization from a people perspective. And that has so many downstream implications from your talent strategy perspective. I've been in the talent space for a while, and I would often get annoyed with some of the the boxes that hiring organizations would put around what they're looking for like must have a degree, must have X amount of years of experience and all these time and seat variables. And my argument was, and, and I read Lou Adler and consume his information constantly, and he's a big outcomes-based recruiting person. Tying that into your disruption context, if you're truly doing a disruptive startup and you apply it to your talent strategy and you rethink how you hire At that point, it opens you up to hire based on attitude and aptitude. You can train the skill and then you're not beholden to a piece of paper that says, oh, I'm capable of doing X. When we all know that just because you have this piece of paper that says you did something, it doesn't mean that you know anything or can do anything. It creates opportunity for apprenticeships and all sorts of different stuff. You won me over.
1: (laughs) To your point though, you just made, that is one thing I am excited to see cropping up though is skills-based hiring mindset and people are shifting to it or at least starting to put their toes into the water of, okay, wait a minute, let's stop requiring all these degrees. I'm also very excited to see there is more stock being put into certifications, that there are more opportunities for the boot camps, especially you talk about on the technical side and understanding someone not going to college is not just a choice of, I don't like school there are so many contributing factors to that decision. And then you just that decision overall, if we're talking in a holistic sense of people, let's then go back into and break it down by demographics. You don't know what somebody's dealing with or what obligations they may have that may restrict them from choosing to go to college or having the opportunity to go to college or pursuing that. It could be someone's obligation to their family. It could be Someone who had no choice but to go into the family business because the family has put everything they had. It could be a mom and pop store. It could be a restaurant. It could be construction company. And there's no college. You don't need to go to college. I'll teach you everything. You know, you're now the second in command, graduated high school. This is it. Whereas that person may not even want to pursue that but they feel the obligation. And then tying that back into your cultural obligations and norms and expectations are so heavy. And that I'm grateful to see that this younger generation that is coming through now, I guess there's Z, Gen Z, Gen cell phone, whatever. <laughs> but they're understanding that whole, your expectations of me do not have to be my goals. And that is so powerful because there are a lot of people my age and older who haven't gotten that, yet, who yeah. have- follow through with goals somebody else set because they know I don't want to disappoint this person. It is not your obligation to live out somebody else's
0: dreams. That's a great point. It's not your obligation to live out somebody else's dreams. That's a great statement. And I think millennials and Generation Z, for all the (laughs) flack they get from Gen Xers and above, I think by and large, in terms of the relationship between the employer and the employee, labor and management they're more right than previous generations are. The pandemic only accelerated or proved it out. This is not related to the topic, but it's going to be interesting to see as the post-pandemic world adjusts to whatever the new normal is. You see organizations already starting to boil the frog and bring people back into the office, like Google just recently announced that they're doing so many investments across multiple markets with the intent of bringing the teams back in. And it'll be interesting to see where the management versus labor relationship and lines in the sand go. Because uh, honestly, when you go back to your original conversation about, hey, what were corporations originally structured to do? Number one responsibility of a corporation is to be profitable and pay their shareholders a dividend. Everything else is just whatever. It's the cog in the wheel mentality. And you see a lot of that these days in most corporations and especially in big tech where the shift is our roles at our company are highly in demand. You're replaceable. If you don't move back to what we say, you're out of a job. That's a tough space to be in. You have me in alignment with saying, hey, if you truly want to be disruptive, this should be something that you start out with as far as a disruptive talent strategy and disruptive meaning disruptive to the legacy way of thinking. I'm with you there. Now, when we look at the growth and maturity of that startup, I'm not convinced because I'm thinking about my mission as a startup. I want to scale, accelerate, grow, and whatever my exit plan is, I want that executed. And I want to be able to get there as fast as possible. So when I look at the companies that have actually... Executed that at one point Google was a startup, Amazon was a startup, Apple was a startup. All of these big companies were startups. DEI wasn't even on their radar, and look at where they are now. So why wouldn't I follow their model? Why should I look at DEI as an accelerator that'll get me beyond where those organizations are faster? How will DEI help me execute my exit plan? So
1: look at you. I think you just answered your own question in phrasing it. So what are all these companies doing now? They're going back to integrate DEI into their ways of doing business versus where could they have been? Let's go in the wayback machine. Had they done that from the get, where would they be now? Versus now, yes, and that's not taken away from any of the, they've changed our lives, all of us collectively. They were examples for others to follow and not just in the tech space, but just across enterprise as a whole. And people looked at them and said, wow, what is really happening over at Google or at Uber or Microsoft? Like there's a demand for their product. They are building a loyal workforce. They're reducing their churn as far as people just walking out the door and they have to invest so much to keep somebody coming in the door. There's innovation. There's new ideas coming through there are niche areas being touched upon and addressed and solutions are coming out of there because they've integrated so many different voices, but also aligned it to their larger purpose and their end product that it's serving so many people. They're not losing. How do we do that? How do we replicate? Versus now it's, we've gotten to this level, not without hitting our head on on quite a few walls, but now we also see the error of our ways and also the fact that there is a demand for us to do better because of the way we have integrated ourselves into the world as a whole. Let's be clear: tech companies, especially big tech—your Apple's, your Microsoft, your Google's—you cannot navigate the world without touching on something that they have a hand in yep. every single solitary day. Short of being off the grid, tinfoil hat, like <laughs> completely, and you're not watching this if that is you, but. If you are living in the modern world, there is something one of those three companies has a hand in that influences or impacts you at some point every single solitary day. How much more could they have done if there was a comprehensive approach to ensuring there was inclusion of every market they dreamed of touching? How many more ideas and solutions would have come out of
0: that? That's an interesting question to examine. I'm not sure if we'd ever be able to adequately answer one way or another. You're talking about a level of scale. We're having this theoretical discussion. We're talking about a level of scale that most of us can't even wrap our heads around on what would have happened. Let's approach it a different way. So if I'm a startup and I make the decision, I'm going to do what's worked and I'm going to do what Microsoft and all these other companies that have case studies written on them and whatnot did in terms of how I want to build, grow, and scale my organization. And I'm not going to look at DEI as any big thing until I've gotten out of survival mode. I'm going to wait till my basic needs are satisfied as an organization. I'm in a place where I'm profitable, and then I'm going to focus on DEI. What's wrong with that thinking?
1: You're already so far behind. You're going to spend more money, time and energy trying to catch up. And then to your point about exit strategies, if your exit strategy is to either be purchased or to go public, there's going to be a level of accountability that is going to be called for either by your investors or by the public to see how you do business, who you do business with and what matters to you. DEI overall, I know that there, I know that there are books because I have a whole bunch of them over on my desk. There are books about it. There are theories. There are philosophies. At its core, I describe it. And this may offend some practitioners, and that's fine. Argue amongst yourselves. It really is kindergarten rules, and we start there. And that's not to, to oversimplify it, but really, at its core, when you talk about the starting of the conversation, it's the reminder of humanity that each of us possess. And teaching one another how to work and respect each other in the capacities we're in and in the environments we're in in an effort to get the job done. That's like ground level. We can get into the intricacies of biases and dimensions of diversity and not stop saying his food stinks. Don't say his name is funny. Don't call her right by the wrong name. Don't say things that may cause you to get hit in the face. Let's be polite. Keep your hands to yourself. Just very much base level. Say hi. Don't call them the weird kid and not deal with them. How are we working together? Kindergarten at its core. Let's start there. We build upon the, the competencies and, and the areas, and you develop your knowledge around it, your emotional intelligence as it relates, but we got to start somewhere. In that base level, kindergarten rules. How many times have you seen, I know I've seen cautionary tales all over the place about people at startups who don't know how to properly navigate the environment because they think they can come in and whatever they endured at, maybe it was a corporate environment or maybe they were bullied in high school and they just came up with this idea and now they're getting funded and they're doing it. But then they build such a gross environment full of toxicity and horrible behavior that then stifles their ability to be profitable and to go and change the world the way they probably dreamed of because they forgot the kindergarten rules.
0: You might get some pushback on being, on oversimplifying it. Sometimes there's so much information and so much theory on all sorts of different topics. And DEI is no exception. But You got to start somewhere and it's basics win matches is one of the phrases that my high school coaches would tell me. Don't go for the flashy stuff. Focus on foundational execution at a high level, and that'll get you 90% of the way that you're trying to get to. That's a good starting point. And especially your point about, okay, if you're in a startup, you have an exit plan that you've established, whatever that might be. It might be to go IPO, might be to go acquired, might be to go from self-funded to private equity or whatever that looks like. And when you're looking at legal talent, workforce, culture, scaling, all of that sort of stuff, there's an impact that having or not having DEI has on it. So beyond the kindergarten rules, what else can an organization or a startup, or maybe even just a, an organization that's established that wants to build a foundation of DEI to go from, beyond the kindergarten rules, what are some actionable things that they should be doing as far as critical steps or critical competencies to build a DEI into their culture?
1: So the first step I would say to assess their environment and doing that with a partnership of a DEI professional as well as your leadership. Because you can hire all the consultants, you can get all the surveys, all the all of that. But if there is not an understanding and a desire to have different outcomes, it doesn't matter. You're just being performative. I'm anti-performative.
0: DEI. I'm going to hit pause right there because I I, I want an explanation on what anti-performative DEI means. I know what it means, or at least I think I know what it means, but let's share with the class since we're we're kindergarten mode of DEI (laughs) building. What's performative?
1: And so here's why I recommend an assessment. It is very easy. And we saw this in June of 2020 after the murder of George Floyd We saw a lot of companies jumping online and getting a break and Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And they were very vocal, at least online. And I say vocal in terms of a graphic or a statement or a tweet or whoever prepared that. They were loud and proud all over their outward facing. Some of them changed their websites. Yet within those organizations, not all of them. But some of them put that out there, but then never address any type of issues within their own organization involving Black employees. They never looked into their rates of hiring for not just Black, but non-white employees or non-majority employees, depending on what their environment was and what their statistics were as far as hiring. There was no investment into changing the outcome. It was quite simply the graphic. That is performative. It's the same way in June. You will see rainbows all over the place for businesses, yet there are within the walls of some of the businesses who will turn their graphic into a rainbow in June that have employees who identify under LGBTQIA+, who are not comfortable even sharing if they choose to, that they are a member of that community who have managers or leadership who refuses to respect their pronouns, who get harassed because they may present differently than their pronouns. And yet the company says, oh, we're doing so good. Or or, we're on this list or we're on that list. That's performative. If you're not living it, but you want to go out and rah, rah, cheer for it. It's like being a bandwagon sports fan. So it's, it's akin to being a bandwagon sports. It's when they win. Woo, I'm, I'm a fan. Give me a jersey.
0: Thanks for spelling out the, the performative part before we went into the rest of it. Pick it up from that point going forward. You can't be performative. You have to be looking at making some real change. And So what else can organizations do to build on the foundation of those kindergarten rules to accelerate DEI being embedded in their organization?
1: So the assessment that I mentioned before that is done with your leadership, as well as with a DEI consultant, a firm, a professional, if that is someone on your staff who does that, is to get an accurate snapshot of what is happening within your organization. I like to caution people who are looking for DEI consultants and they're just kind of price shopping them versus actually talking or hearing or learning from somebody to see how they actually... Will go about creating a strategy for companies that are looking for um, help developing or improving their DEI outcomes is if somebody offers you a, a strategy in a box, they just want your check. In order to accurately develop a strategy that is going to be actionable and implementable in your environment, someone has to assess your environment to see what are your Statistic. What are your demographics? Do you even measure your demographics? What's your engagement like? What's your relationship from a leadership standpoint with your employees? What's your culture? Is there a defined culture? How do people feel working there? Are they proud to work there? Or is it one of those gray jobs on LinkedIn, like the company hidden? Do they not share that? What does all that look like? What are your goals? How do you hire What's the environment? What's being said about you on Glassdoor? What's being said about you on Fishbowl? All of these different things. There's so many different elements that have to go into assessing an environment to develop the correct recommendations. It's like going to the doctor. I mean, it's WebMD, right? So if you cough three times, you go to WebMD, what's happening? You're dying. Is that accurate? You have to go and get your personalized assessment to determine what is happening. Versus it being the, oh, well, it it says if people don't like working here and you only have four black people out of 500 and you don't have any ERGs, start ERGs, hire somebody to be your DEI program manager and voila, everything's going to be magic. It's not. And that's the incorrect approach.
0: Your assessment point is actually really well taken. If we're talking about the next step just above the kindergarten rules, you you have to get a deep understanding of what your current state is. And then from there, prioritize what elements of that current state you're going to fix first. So that led me to another question. And I know that this isn't something that we had talked about before, but you said you should look for a DEI coach. You shouldn't be factoring that coach based on price. If an organization doesn't know anything about DEI, and I'm exaggerating, what should they be looking for in terms of what a coach brings to the table? Obviously, shopping by price is not usually a good idea. What are the factors or credentialing or background organizations need to be looking for from a DEI consultant or coach to come in, do the assessment, and then take that assessment and build strategy and prioritize to move forward? What advice do you have there?
1: I would say if you're outsourcing your DEI work or even doing an assessment or or trying to build and start and you want someone who can help you create benchmarks and give you reference points specific to your industry, especially if it's very niche, then ask your peers, hey, other tech company, who did you guys use to do your, or do you have a recommendation for someone to do a DEI assessment? looking at different firms and seeing who they have on their staff as far as people with the knowledge of your industry as well as your competitors because that can help you also with best practices. It's not always about having such a, a highly specialized recommendation list. A lot of it is best practices. And there are great organizations out there like a Diversity Inc., like diversity best practices, like National Diversity Council, Gartner. Catalyst who have consultants on staff who are more than happy to come in and help give you an assessment. Or you can subscribe to some of the resources and pull from there. Or you can find an independent consultant. But make sure that it's somebody who's not only familiar with business and DEI, but they are familiar with your business and at minimum your industry. Or that they have some sort of Expertise in an area that you want to go. If they've worked at a large company and you're a smaller company looking to go large, they can tell you how to get there or what the expectations are there. If you are, you know, a larger company looking to go major, multinational, looking for someone with global experience, look for someone who understands cultural nuances, cultural competencies. All of these things are very important. But if you are a big company and you're looking for somebody who's only worked small and they don't know what it's like to work across time zones beyond New York to LA or uh, language barriers or holidays, just in general, that's going to be a problem. And may not be able to help you to develop and assess the answers that will help your organization grow properly.
0: That's a great set of recommendations. And I want to tie this all together. We've had this Really great conversation. I think we've gone to a level of depth, but I would have loved to go even deeper. I want to wind this back a little bit to prove what you're saying. So, we didn't set this up really well, and that's my fault in the beginning. You've actually done this work at large organizations. So, you were formerly of Allstate, impacting these initiatives throughout the organizations. You have big company experience. So, it's not all theoretical, but the topic of the show is how do you embed DEI? within a startup environment. What do you have to say about making that real and actually executing in a real life, uh, real world environment? Well, I'm doing that
1: right now. I am building a DEI program at a tech startup. And yeah, it's not a game. It's fun. It is interesting. It is a learning. I'm grateful for the experience that I had prior at all stages you mentioned at USC, even many moons ago noticing different nuances and best practices, as I've mentioned, from other organizations I've been affiliated with. But it really is going back and understanding and seeing what my prior experience as well as best practices and assessing what's in front of me that is helping the strategy to come together. So that was my first 90 days in my role was assessing, analyzing, and then recommending. It wasn't coming in bull in a china shop like, oh, where are the demographics? Where are the pronouns? Where- Why don't you have... Stop. Let's find out what's happening. Again, whatever is developed, it has to align with the culture. What's the culture? What's the norm? What are the people saying? How are people experiencing this space? What do they want? Asking and having real conversations and allowing people not just to to you know piss and moan, but to honestly say, I would love it. I would feel more a part of this environment. I would love coming to work or logging on every day even more if it would be great if we had and taking all that and then getting the buy in from leadership and saying, hey, these, this is what your people want. Where do you stand on this? And not in an ultimatum sense, but quite honestly saying, where do you want to see this business go? How do you want to see it? Go? Where do you see it being? How do you want people to experience your business? I think one very important thing to acknowledge for those who are in startup environments, too, is that a lot of the time, especially if your founders are still involved, it's very personal. They have corporate business experience, but this is this person's heart. This is their blood, sweat and tears. And even if it's grown to a fairly large space, it's still their baby. For those who are parents, you understand, even if your kid is an adult now navigating the world, at some point, they're still your baby and you want to make sure they have the guidance and that they're not running amok and, and you still want what's best. And you don't want to completely let go and let somebody else take it in a direction you may not be as comfortable with, even if it's might be the best thing for the organization. In a startup, it's really important to have those conversations to give recommendations without being heavy handed, but also finding that happy medium, that common ground and saying, here's what on the corporate side may be the best thing to do. I understand that you may have a recommendation or a thought on something else. How far do you want this to go? The first conversations I had with the CEO at the startup, who was one of the founders, and I asked him, I said, how far you want me to go? If I come in and I'm pedal to the metal, and I'm doing things that make him uncomfortable, or he feels like this is not the company I want to represent the work we do, then we're going to clash, and then I'm going to be mad, and then it's going to be a problem. Versus having communication and saying, here's a recommendation. Are you good with this? Or if you have something else, tell me. Because I want to incorporate that. I want this to be ours instead of it being me pushing. Because that also creates space for if something goes left,
0: I think that's a fundamental leadership principle you're talking about. It's how do you build golden circle communication? What's our agreed upon why? What's our agreed upon vision for success? And how do we work together to get there? When you're breaking it down to kindergarten terms, that's my explanation of what you just told me. And that's great stuff you just walked us through. I'm not going to close down the show without having you give us the most critical takeaways you have or critical points that organizations need to be focusing on when they're looking at embedding DEI into their culture. You can approach it from that perspective or approach it from the topic of this show, which is how do you embed DEI into a startup culture? So what are the the, the two or three most important factors that organizations need to consider when evaluating a yes or no decision? Yeah.
1: Touched on one just a second ago, why you're doing this and understand DEI being a part of your structure and your business is not meant to derail you or not meant to detract from that why. It can actually help you. That DEI should be a part of your whole business. Stop tucking it under HR and making it just seem like it's making people feel good and they'll stay here. It's bigger than that. And it does impact your bottom line. It shows through your hiring. It shows through your spending. It shows through your customers. It shows through everything that you do, your philanthropic pursuits. It should be in everything because it's about people. It should not just be tucked under HR, if that makes sense. I know that may sound like it's in conflict, but I think that's an important reminder, especially on the tech side, is there's so much focus on whatever the output is. DEI is about making sure your people are good. And the fundamental, you know, pieces of making sure people are treated right and do good work and feel comfortable bringing their A-game are present in everything that you do. And it will show internally.
0: I, I, I especially agree with your point about it shouldn't be tucked under HR because you've talked about performative DEI and one of the most irritating things, and I'm not even a DEI practitioner. I'm nowhere near knowledgeable in this space. But it annoys the hell out of me when people or organizations say, oh, yeah, we care about DEI and we have this task force. And you basically have people in an organization that are putting in extra work, not getting paid and not having any budget to actually move the needle to make you look good. That's performative DEI. I I think just like any other function in an organization, if you truly believe in it, it needs to stand on its own has its reporting structure and it has to have a budget if you're not going to put budget behind it it doesn't exist and it doesn't the matter
1: the same way you wouldn't send your marketing people out there to sell the product your salespeople to sell the product your your tech folks to develop the product the same way you wouldn't ask them to do that without budget don't yep. do that too.
0: yeah this is a phenomenal conversation maya thank you for joining us just a heads up and for those listening Obviously, we went a lot of different places and we didn't really even dig deep. So I think everybody will be excited to know you will be seeing Maya at least one other time. We are putting together a DEI panel and getting deep into the topic of how we embed DEI into an organization. Maya is going to be one of the panelists on that conversation, and I encourage everybody to tune in when that airs. This particular episode will be done in sequence leading up to that capstone panel discussion. And we have definite all-stars that are going to be on that panel. And it's going to be a really fun conversation. Can't wait for that to happen. Maya, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, For those listening, you can find us on all of your podcasts, major podcast platforms. We are on YouTube. We are on TikTok. Our main channel is LinkedIn definitely find Maya Winston on LinkedIn and connect with her if you haven't already and and if you're looking for dei expertise I'm sure she knows people and and by people, people. And, and and by people <laughs> I mean you need to talk to her Maya, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great conversation. Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. And if nothing else, the fact that I got to slam Notre Dame in the beginning of the conversation was worth it. So thanks for joining us. And we will see you on the next episode of Cascading Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.